In a week that saw the nation breathe a sigh of relief when justice was served in the Derek Chauvin trial, and with President Biden's calm stewardship boosting his approval ratings to almost 60%, it's important to look at the political forces that got us here and where they might take us. Things are looking up after a lot of drama, but getting along takes vision, work, and strategy, especially with midterms already on the horizon. That's why this week Politicon is thrilled to welcome reporter, author, and political maven Jonathan Allen to discuss his new book, Lucky. It's an incredible in-depth look at the astounding rise of Joe Biden and Kamala Harris to the top of the Democratic pack and into the White House. If you check out the coverage at the start of 2020, it should be almost a surprise to everyone. So why did it happen? Is Biden living up to expectations? Will the positive momentum keep coming? And how the heck are we going to get along? Excited for a different reason because I want to argue with you. Um, <laughs> we don't do arguing like that on the show, so um, so bring, it won't be arguing on. that in a, in a, in a just don't ask me in to an say. argumentative spirit way. But I, you know, I'm interested so much in how you um, in what you and Amy Amy Barnes um, write about in your um, new book, Lucky, uh, how Joe Biden barely won the presidency. Why that title, by the way? Well, you know, it really comes from our sources. Amy and I, um, when this is our third book, um, and all about politics. The first one about Hillary Clinton at the State Department. The second one about the 2016 campaign. And this one about the 2020 campaign. When we put these books together, what we do is we, uh, you know, talk to as many sources as we possibly can on all of the relevant campaigns. Um, and um, sometimes in, including the candidates themselves and uh, in both parties and what our sources told us was there was really a, an incredible confluence of events that led number one to uh, Biden winning the Democratic nomination, uh, but also in this you know supercharged environment last year with uh, with the disease really pl uh, plaguing not only the nation's health but the economy, um, you know it really turned what could have been uh, a negative for Biden into a positive in that um, he his. His tendency to, to say things off the cuff that are harmful to him or to, you know, have a little trouble um, articulating himself well is uh, is difficult in a, in a campaign. But what he was able to do was uh, essentially control his message by not being out on the campaign trail while Donald Trump was uh, in front of the cameras every day in the briefing room, um, you know, really knocking himself in the knees or you know, shooting himself in the foot. And so, you know, that's something Anita Dunn, one of the senior advisors to, to Biden, told an associate that COVID was the best thing that ever happened to Biden. And she didn't mean that the disease was, um, you know, a good thing. But what she did mean was it allowed him to control that message that he has such difficulty controlling. The other thing is, um, so we had sources talking to us about this, including people on the Biden campaign, these sort of incredible set of events. But the other thing is we think that the Democratic Party was lucky to uh, eventually get to the place where they nominated uh, the person who was most likely to beat Trump. Uh, and if you look at the Electoral College and the states that were pivotal in the Electoral College, it, it really was a lot closer than either side wants to talk about and that mo than most people realize. And we can get into that a little bit. Um, and I think after you saw the president, President Trump, 
um, spend so much time trying to discredit the legitimacy of the election process and, um, you know, incite people to go storm uh, the Capitol in January. I, I think the Republic, we're lucky that the Republic held. Well, all of well, us. that I'll, that I'll I, that I'll definitely agree with you on. Um, <laughs> I don't. I want anybody who's listening. I want to make sure I clarify. You, you, Jonathan and Amy Barnes are legit journalists who who write really great political books about these things with facts and sources. So I am gonna. I am gonna. My disagreements with you may not may happen, but they won't come based on disputing your sources or your facts. But I, I, I actually do agree with the with with what you said about the Democratic Party being lucky, but I want to talk about what you what you discuss as being one of Biden's unique. I won't. I don't. As a person who's loved Joe Biden for years, um, well before he was even chosen for VP, he was actually the first person who I ever uh, donated to political campaign ever donated to back in 2008 when he was running in the primary. I just there was something about his authenticity. But anyway, that's people know that that's not the part of the story. But I'm owning my bias right now. All the producers are drinking at this moment because I uh, say that too much. But um, a lot of people saw his tendency for what some would say are gaffes, to be a strength, not a weakness. Um, was that was that never considered in the with the folks that you spoke to? I mean, that was certainly something that Donald Trump did a lot of. Uh, for whatever reason, those who followed him never called some of his incredibly unscripted moments gaffes. Uh, <laughs> they they actually appreciated. The fact that he wasn't scripted, yet Joe Biden always kind of got considered gaff prone when he was not scripted. Um, did people really see that as a as a weakness for him that um, he needed to overcome? Did no one see that as a strength from the get go? Well, someone far more concise and brilliant than myself once said that uh, a gaff is when a politician accidentally says right. what he means. <laughs> um, um, and, and, you know, the term gaffe, and I, I just used it myself, gets thrown a lot around a lot. I think um, to the extent that Joe Biden says things um, that are natural and uh, his immediate reaction to something uh, that are sometimes called gaffes, I think that he does benefit from uh, the feeling of authenticity, that he's just shown you a little bit of who he is and that he has a natural reaction to things. On the other hand, he often says things that undercut his own message, um, that his aides certainly think uh, we're better left, um, you know, on the cutting room okay. floor. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> D are, are Democrats, especially primary voting Democrats, more critical of that than Republican primary voters are? I think Democrats have a tendency to be more critical of their own. I think they have a tendency to, um, you know, maybe have a, a little bit of a fear that whoever it is that they're moving toward nominating is going to be a disaster. I mean, they're always sort of waiting for the other shoe to drop. And I see a little bit less of that in the Republican Party. Generally speaking, Republicans tend to be more confident that their nominees are going to, you know, pull everything off. And, and so, you know, it's a little bit of a difference in the psyche of the parties. But particularly after 2016, when Democrats felt like the rug came out from under them, um, you know, I'm sure I'm sure there were a few Democrats that thought Clinton was going to lose, but the vast majority of them were certain she was going to win uh, and had a real um, 
you know, a, a real abrupt, uh, you know, cold water in the face moment uh, when she lost. And so I think that that feeling of the other shoe being ready to drop or whoever the Democratic nominee is being on the verge of, of imploding, um, you know, kind of carried through for a lot of them, not all of them, but for a lot of them in this last election. The the reasons that Joe Biden and you get into this into the book quite a bit, but the but I want to ask about the reasons he got into the race in the first place. Were were his motivations? I, obviously, you can't gay know what anyone's motivation, true motivation, is for anything, right? But um, you know, certainly, some candidate like Pete Buttigieg, folks might assume his motivation was being young and vibrant and uh, and and sort of exciting because he was history making those things made his candidacy exciting for folks in Iowa. Um, Kamala Harris, also history making, even though she didn't last quite as long as a presidential candidate. Um, there's always something that someone has to think of as they're deciding to run. This is going to be what makes me different. This is going to be what makes me um viable in a primary and a general or a viable in a primary or a general. The reasons that Joe Biden decided to run in the first place um, back in, in 27, 18 or 19, when he finally announced that he was going to run, were the reasons that he had for running, the reasons he felt he could win a primary and a general, did they end up being the reasons that he did win the primary and the general, or was it something else? It's a great question, Clay. I think some of them certainly were. Um, I think Biden's um, Biden's understanding of his own coalition, his ability to appeal both to um, a broad spectrum of African Americans in terms of ideology and also to moderate whites, was sort of dead on. I mean, that ended up being his coalition, and it ended up being crucial for him. Uh, in terms of carrying, uh, you know, certainly South Carolina, uh, the big pivotal moment in the primary, and then also uh, carrying through on Super Tuesday. So I think, you know, that for one thing was a place where he was absolutely right. I think he, um, I think he was also right that the, uh, that not only the Democratic Party, but the country um, wanted somebody who uh, was not going to make them worry every 10 seconds about what he just tweeted. Um, and he really carried that message through. Um, and he carried through a message of, of competent governance, of character, and of compassion um, in ways that contrasted with Trump. And um, and so I think he, you know, I think that he had a good vision for what the country sort of wanted. I mean, it's hard to say that we live in very polarized times, you know. So I don't want to <laughs> I don't want to make the country monolithic, but I think he had a I think he had a very good sense of. Um, what he could deliver that was unique to the public that the public wanted. Um, and that that's the most important ingredient in the campaign. Now that said, you know, I think he also uh, struggled mightily to do the basic blocking and tackling of campaigning. Um, he was not good on the stump um, in Iowa and New Hampshire, where he came in fourth and fifth. He wasn't able to raise money. He wasn't able for a two-term vice president. He really wasn't able to get the kind of support from insiders that would clear the field for him. Um, and I think part of the story of him winning the nomination was, was essentially a process of elimination among Democrats. Um, you know, you saw different candidates rise and fall. Kamala Harris had a rise moment. Uh, Pete Buttigieg had a rise moment. Elizabeth Warren had a rise moment. Everybody between um, 
Sanders and Biden who rose up got pulled down by everyone else in the middle, you know, between those two sort of ideological poles. Um, and I think if, you know, with a less crowded race, it might have been a little more difficult for Biden. But, you know, in the end, um, in the end, I think he had some some sort of key ideas at the beginning that did did carry through. He he did miserably, obviously, in Iowa and New Hampshire, and <laughs> he lost to people who never were able to maintain that momentum. I mean, Pete Buttigieg did incredibly well in Iowa and then damn near disappeared um, in the polling of the following two states. Um, but, Clay, you know, it's interesting what you just said, because it um, it points to what I was just talking about, about those people in the middle pulling each other down. So Buttigieg wins Iowa. He goes to New Hampshire um, and Amy Klobuchar kind of knocks him out on a debate stage um, there. And we talk about this in the book. We kind of go into the, the, you know, the back scenes of what's going on with these two candidates. But she basically says, you know, we've already had a we've, we've already got a president who had no experience. Why would we want another one? And he's just kind of left reeling. Right. And Klobuchar ends up getting something like 18 percent in in uh, um, in New Hampshire. And Buttigieg only loses to Sanders by a couple points. So it's, it's Sanders first, Buttigieg right behind him and Klobuchar in third, doing much better than anyone had expected her to do at that point. And what it does is it it knocks Pete off the, the trajectory to potentially get a springboard and win. I mean, if he wins Iowa and wins New Hampshire, He's suddenly the the it candidate um, for the media, and that just doesn't happen. There was for him. there was. I mean, I, I'm I'm grinning here as you say that because I was publicly supporting Biden myself. I'm owning I'm owning it so much more today than I normally do. I'm being <laughs> incredibly effusive with my own opinion here, <laughs> but I was very supportive of Biden until New Hampshire, and I switched my uh, allegiance after New Hampshire to Amy Klobuchar myself, not because I didn't still love Biden, but because I personally agreed with everything she said. And as a Democrat from the South, um, and I want to come back to that in just a second, as a Democrat from the South, I recognized that in my home state, there were candidates on my party side, the Democrat side, who I believed strongly could be successful in a Georgia or a North Carolina or a, you know, moderate bluish, reddish, red, blue, purplish state. Um, and there were candidates who could not. And my fear openly was that, you know, I want Joe Biden to be the nominee, but if he can't be, it's got to be Amy Klobuchar because Pete Buttigieg was has certainly presented a very moderate platform, but he, you know, he had he had this lack of experience. He was he looked like he was 15 and he just, you know, were there people who voted? I mean, is it fair to say so much that Amy Klobuchar took away votes from Pete Buttigieg? Or is it possible that they weren't necessarily really there in places outside of Iowa. Um, I, I, do you think that her bump in the polls went from all from Pete Buttigieg going to her? Or they were just people who probably weren't going to vote for him at all anyway. But, you know, she, they didn't know where else they were going to go. And she gave him a home. It's hard to know, um, you know, exactly 
how many people went from one candidate to another. Um, I think Klobuchar's uh, relative success in New Hampshire, the uh, extra votes that she got came from several of the candidates. But I do think that Pete Buttigieg was one of them. Um, you know, he was soaring uh, heading into that New Hampshire uh, week and he was doing well in New Hampshire polling. And, um, you know, and, and she kind of came out of nowhere and rose up. I think it took a little bit out of him. I think she took some from Biden. I think she took some from Elizabeth Warren. Um, you know, and, and that's the case. I mean, look, you're talking about a party primary. A lot of these candidates are, you know, relatively attractive to a broad swath of Democratic voters. I mean, the, the differences in their values are, are pretty small. As, and we're seeing that right now in the early days of, of the Biden presidency. Um, his party is unified behind him. Right but that's kind of the case with that was the case, arguably, with every primary that we've been through. I mean, politics in there. Having only done one, I feel like I think I'm an expert, but I'm not. But damn it, there's nothing harder than a primary. I would be I'd been would have been happy to run my general campaign all year. But the three months that I spent in the primary were by far the hardest because you're trying to differentiate yourself, not by policy, but by personality and or or it's it's so personal and wasn't so so I don't want to get too far into the deep the the, the weeds with the primary itself, but I wanna ask how much that had a hand in Joe Biden's victory in South Carolina, because a lot of credit has been given, obviously, and should be given to the the black vote in South Carolina, which obviously put him over the top. But did they choose Joe Biden because they believed he was the best candidate for black voters, for black Americans, um, that he had the best platform for black Americans? Or was there another reason? Was it was it like, listen, I've got very, I've got very close black friends in South Carolina who would admit they would have rather had a black nominee, but they didn't trust the rest of America <laughs> to be willing to vote for them. And so Joe Biden for them was, you know, he's the, that's the, that's the ship I'm gonna get on because I trust him. I like him. And I believe that he's the safest bet when we get to Georgia and other places. Yeah, I mean, I spoke to, to black voters in several of the states and also, um, you know, sort of a, a wide variety in terms of, you know, average voter to political official. And I think that obviously you can't encapsulate, uh, every, you know, everyone in an entire uh, race, how they voted into to one idea. But I do think what you're getting at is right, that there were a lot of black voters who looked at Joe Biden as the one who could beat Trump. And that's what mattered most. And that the interests of the black community writ large um, were to get rid of Trump right. more than anything else. And so it didn't matter that, you know, Biden might not be where they are on police reform or they might not be where they are on or were or were on school busing 40 years ago. Um, but his but in fact, that wasn't a, a detriment. It was something that was helpful because they looked at him as somebody who could compete with Trump uh, uh, for the votes of moderate. That's white really people. that's there's a selflessness to that, um, to me at least. That because because I don't think there are many people who voted in the Democratic primary in 2020 at all who wouldn't have prioritized getting rid of Trump, who could beat Trump. Um, I think everybody voted with that top of mind, um, even in Iowa, and New Hampshire, but um, to me, there's a selflessness. 
uh, about the black vote in South Carolina, North Carolina, a lot of the southern states where that that demographic voted pretty strongly for Joe Biden because they didn't necessarily vote just their own interests. They voted the interests of others um, in ways that one might argue that folks in Democrats in Iowa and New Hampshire didn't necessarily do. Well, I think there's a necessary political sophistication for uh, for African-Americans and for other minority groups in the country, right? I mean, uh, if you are in a class that has been uh, has been persecuted or oppressed, uh, the stakes are higher for you. Um, and the, the, the African-American community over time has had to think about and worry about voting rights, much less which candidate wins. And, I, you know, I think the ability to, um, you know, I'll go back in history a little bit, but the, the ability to listen to Lyndon Johnson and George Wallace in conversation and tell the difference between what their policies are going to be, even though they sound a little bit alike, um, is the difference between, um, you know, can be the difference between survival and oppression. And, you know, I mean, so there's, there's so much at stake in this. So I think the, the black electorate in the United States is, is incredibly sophisticated. Um, and part of that, at least in democratic primaries in the, in the modern era is essentially voting as a block, figuring out which candidate is best for the black community, whatever its priority is in that election. And, going forward with it. And, and in 2008, it was Barack Obama. And by 2020, it's Joe Biden who was picked, and people forget this, he was picked to balance Barack Obama's ticket. He was picked because uh, he wasn't going to harm the Obama ticket and he might be appealing to uh, moderate whites that the Obama folks wanted to make sure were on board. And you know, any number of people around Obama said that at the time. And it's sort of been forgotten in the um, a little bit of the hagiography of the Obama Biden administration. Are there are there numbers that you know of um, off the top of your head? Sorry about how I know it's very minuscule the population in Iowa and New Hampshire, but the the African American vote in those two states. Do we know where that who where they voted in the? I don't have anything off the yeah. top of my head on that, but to your point, it's it is a very small population. I believe I believe it's a little higher in Iowa than it is in New Hampshire. But I mean, you're talking right. about you know very few single. Digits. I was I was just curious because sometimes I wonder if there's also a regional perception too. Again, I'm acting as if though I know everything, but I well, don't. no, but I mean, but it's a good point that you make. I mean, there is there are differences in voting behavior and political interests of various African-American communities. I mean, you know, for years, the, and we write about this in the book a little bit to get into the South Carolina primary and, and Jim Clyburn and how much power um, he has in the Congressional Black Caucus and as a result of that, how much influence he has uh, in the Democratic presidential primaries. But there is a difference between, um, you know, the, there was sort of an older generation of black leadership from Northern cities, um, you know, Charlie Rangel in New York and John Conyers in Detroit um, and folks like that versus um, what you saw in the 1990s round of uh, redistricting um, that Newt Gingrich pushed, uh, you ended up with a whole new crop of uh, of black members from the South for the first time because uh, in states where there had not been black representation, what Gingrich did was pack all of the African-American right. voters into single districts um, to make more Republican districts and more black districts, but fewer Democratic districts. And as a result of that, you've seen the rise of, of influence of 
um, Southern black leaders within Congress. And that's why Clyburn is in such an interesting place, because he was the leader of that generation of Southern right. black Congress people who uh, kind of took power from the Northern uh, urban African. But I also wonder, in addition to it just being a, you know, about all the all of the gerrymandering and the race, the packing and cracking and those those issues there we we are in bubbles we've talked about this on this podcast several times that we've lived we now live in bubbles where we're surrounded so often about by those people who are who agree with us and who you know if you disagree with somebody on facebook you delete them they're not your friend anymore and there there is also i have to imagine in especially in the black community and the black um, population in the South who are surrounded by, you know, quite a bit of, you know, racism and certainly racist policy and, and certainly even if not racist, definitely more conservative uh, neighbors in their red States. People always, I, I mean, I do wonder sometimes if I'm a moderate because I am a moderate on policy or if I'm a moderate politically, because I'm not really a moderate on policy, I'm a moderate more politically, but I look around in North Carolina and I vote for not who I think um, my family will agree with me and vote for. Um, I, I know that people around me who are conservative weren't going to vote for Joe Biden, but I knew they weren't going to dislike him. And I have to wonder if there was, if it wasn't so much luck for Joe Biden as the fact that he was he met the moment. I mean, he was the person who black people and white people who were Democrats in the South could look around and say, OK, he may not satisfy Democrats in other parts of the country. But and I, and I know that in South Carolina, he's never going to win here. But I also know that it's going to be a lot harder for people to be made afraid of him. How much of his success was based on the fact that if Donald Trump was Teflon Don for Republicans and nothing seemed to stick to him, how much of Joe Biden's success in the general came from the fact that it was very difficult to find an attack that could stick to him? I think the attacks themselves were problematic for Trump. I mean, not only that they didn't stick, but you had one candidate saying, I want to heal the country. I'm not going to say bombastic things. I'm not going to say crazy things. And, and Trump, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, um, you know, driving that contrast that Biden wanted to make, um, you know, in a way, you know, Donald Trump's inability to sort of discipline himself, I think, was very helpful to Biden. As far as as far as luck goes, look, I, I'm glad we're able to have the debate over, like, whether Biden was lucky and whether the Democrats uh, were lucky and whether the country was lucky. But I, I what I would urge people who are listening to do is, you know, read the book because you can. Um, number one, if you're interested in politics, there's a ton of like great behind the scenes stuff in there about how, um, you know, how all these moments that you remember from the campaign actually played out and what was what was forcing them. And, and if you come to the conclusion that Biden wasn't lucky, I still think you're going to enjoy the book. But I, I do. I do think that Biden was able in the general election, in part because of some of the things that hit the country, that particularly the coronavirus crisis to really drive home the aspects of his differences with Trump that he wanted to. And that wasn't necessarily going to be the case, right? Um, if you look at, and I touched on this earlier, if you look at um, Wisconsin, Arizona, and Georgia, 
Uh, Biden won those three states by about 43,000 votes combined. Uh, had Trump won those states, he would still be president of the United States. This election was extraordinarily close. And there are people around Trump and some people around Biden, and we talked to them and, and they're quoted in the book, um, who say that if, if Trump had simply shown a little more compassion around coronavirus, um, that they think that, that Biden probably would have lost. So I don't know. I don't know where that that line falls of what Trump would have done to win the election, but I do know that he wasn't that far off. So now I'm now I'm I'm wondering. You you're saying you spoke to people and you, you mentioned in the book that believe that Trump could have done something differently and still won, right? Correct. So who thinks so much so simple as showing a little more compassion about about So what can Democrats or should Democrats learn from this? Because when I hear, you know, if I go if I go to Vegas and I do whatever you do in Vegas, I don't know. I'm not good. This is the worst analogy in the world because I can't because <laughs> I don't play any kind of sports or competitions except for singing and I clearly lose this. Um, <laughs> but if I but if if I'm playing soccer the winner was lucky <laughs> right but so that but that's my point so if i'm playing a game and i win and the argument is i won because of luck then i can't learn from that i can't take the lessons from that game and realize okay this is what i did that made me successful it was luck so i wonder if there's anything that you think that democrats can learn from joe biden and kamala harris's win or if it's all just attributed to luck then it wasn't necessarily anything they did right so we can you know we can run kermit the frog next time well well let me talk a little bit about what i think about luck just just as a frame because i think it's important um i think in in any situation which are successful with a project you know whether it's writing a book or, um, or running for office or, or anything else, uh, you have to do everything right in order, almost everything right, not always everything right, but you have to do a lot right to, uh, to win or to, to come out on top. And you also often need a little bit of that, you know, sort of non-empirical uh, magic fair, dust, fair. right? Um, and plenty of people do everything right and, and lose. Um, very few people uh, win despite doing everything wrong. Right. So, I mean, the, the, the concept here is that there's um, that there were a lot of events that aligned that were favorable to, to Biden that didn't have to. Um, but I do want to sort of touch back to what you were what you were kind of asking about. I, I think there is actually a lot to learn um, for Democrats and for Republicans. I, I mean, but you asked about Democrats. so I'll, I'll go there. Um, I think that. If you're the Democratic Party, you should look at having won the the popular vote in five of the last six elections, um, but not winning the presidency in all five of them. In fact, losing it in two of them. Uh, look at those elections and, and say to yourself, there, there, there are two reactions to that. One is the system is mm -hmm. rigged in a way that's against Democrats. And you hear that constantly, right? Democrats won by seven, Biden won by seven million votes, and it was just so narrow. And Hillary Clinton won by you know, a few million votes and it was, and, and she lost the election, right? And so there's that reaction to it. But the other reaction to it might be that there is something that the Democrats aren't doing right in terms of focusing on 
the places where the elections decide. Say it again, John. (laughs) (laughs) Democrats may be doing something wrong in terms of focusing on the places where the elections are decided. And it's the system that we have, and it's the system that we're going to continue to have, um, you know, without a constitutional amendment or without every, you know, enough states uh, voting to change the way that they do their electors. And, And so as long as those are the rules... The Democratic Party is best served by figuring out how to win under those rules rather than complaining that the rules. Okay, are now good. we're being friends. I'm feeling it. <laughs> I totally, I totally agree. I appreciate I totally that. agree with that. No, I mean obviously I didn't dislike it, but I, it's a, I also appreciate what you said about luck because not that I subscribe to this philosophy, her philosophies all the time, but Oprah's very well known for saying there is no luck there's success is preparation meeting opportunity right and so i think that's what you're describing luck as then in this book which was not just magical forces that allowed him to win but great a a good strategy and message and other things falling into place yeah absolutely And, and the one sort of thing i would add to that is that some of those things that fell into place were very much out of his control. So not just preparation and opportunity, but but also some some breaks going your way. And, and you can describe it as God or fate. And by the way, Biden talks about both of those things all the time. And we quote him in the book repeatedly talking about luck um, and people around him talking about luck. This is somebody who has like a, um, you know, a, a belief, uh, you know, what does he say? He's always saying, um, you know, good Lord willing and the creek don't rise. You know, I mean, like it's, this is somebody who, understands that there are things that are out of your control. Um, and and in this case, a lot of them went his way. Do you think that there's... It's not to take away from him. The, term, the, the word lucky is not to take away from Joe Biden. Do, okay, well then, marvelous. <laughs> um, do you... I mean, you've, you've been doing this uh, a while. You are an expert in not just this election and, and the 2016 election, but you've obviously followed them before. Is there a president or a campaign, um, a presidential campaign in the in the past however many years you've been paying attention, where you think that the person won in spite of having bad luck? Would you say that there's someone who didn't win based on luck in some way? I think, I think President Barack Obama, you know, there were some things that went his way, but I think he won without luck. I think he had a message that was um, very broad and appealing. Both times uh, or and, one in and, particular? Both, both races or one in particular? I was thinking of 2008 in particular, but, you know, interestingly, in 2012, um, you know, that election was one where, uh, you know, I think it was a little closer than Democrats had thought it was going to be. And I think there were moments where where Obama hurt himself. There was that first debate against Romney where he didn't have the preparation that you need to meet opportunity. Okay, okay. Um, but, I, but Obama sort of leaps to mind. I mean, there, there are plenty of elections where, um, you know, a candidate wins by a significant amount and, and you can see why that candidate was, you know, you can see why that candidate had brought something to the table with the strength of their candidacy across the board. I mean, Obama was a good orator. Obama was, uh, you know, somebody who hadn't voted for the, uh, had no vote on the Iraq war, but had been against it at the time. I mean, there were there were things, and he was a, a killer fundraiser. So you'd see him on the stump, or you'd hear him talking, and he had this sort of broad appeal. And I, so I don't I don't think there was. I mean, you know, he came in, and there was a financial crisis, and that pretty much put the, you know, the 
the final, I was going to say the final nail, but that pretty much ended McCain's ability to win and compete effectively. But I think Obama was on course to win that election anyway. I think he was an exciting, energetic candidate um, who, who really, um, who really brought all of the, you know, kind of the five tools to the table, if you will. So, is so Biden's approval rating? I want to move. We got a, we got a bunch of questions from people who who have listened um, and wanted to send in some questions for you. But I want to ask. I want to move real quickly on to where we are now because Joe Biden's approval ratings are hovering around what sixty percent um, right now in yeah, several okay. polls, uh, which I mean sixty percent of the country in 2021, that's a lot, <laughs> you know, it's not high. My Reagan would scoff at it, but, um, but it's not, it, it's definitely a lot more than we've seen a president have in the past five years or so. Is that based on similar factors? Do you think to what allowed him to win? I don't want to put the word luck in your mouth again, but is it what's, what's allowing him to be successful as a president, um, potent, I mean, arguably even more successful as a president with 60% than he was as a candidate. Well, I mean, first I would say we're, we're early. So, you know, see how things play out. George H.W. Bush cracked over 90% during the uh, Gulf War and then ended up losing the next election. But I think the reason that you're, I think one of the reasons you're seeing Biden do so well in uh, approval ratings right now is that he's essentially delivering what he promised, which is um, you know, a lack of chaos, basic competence, uh, and and character. And, you know, I mean, the, I haven't seen anything that cuts against that. So I think, number one, the people who voted for him are happy with him. Uh, and number two, I think there are people who didn't vote for him um, or voted for Trump uh, who are pleasantly surprised that he's not that bad. Or that he's not bringing, um, he's not the socialist devil that he was promised he would be. I mean, and if anything, you know, Republicans are having a hard time right now because they are watching him leave in place some of Trump's policies that he said he was going to repeal. So it's at some level, he's been, um, at least on some of the social policy or, or, you know, some of the policies that touch on social issues like immigration to the consternation of the left, um, but not to the point that they don't approve of him. Uh, to the consternation of the left, he's, you know, basically left in place uh, most of the the border policy in terms of turning people away and not allowing them to await adjudication in the United States. So, you know, I mean, I think I think there are reasons for people who were not on board with him to look at him and say, to your point, that he hasn't like walked in and um, you know turned the country into into you know a socialist fun land. Do you, if it would be fun, if you use that word, okay. Um, the uh, the there are a whole bunch of folks on. That I see on the news and and read in the paper, who have argued, have made, tried to make the argument that Joe Biden has actually turned out to be one of the more progressive presidents, more so perhaps than than even President Obama, certainly more so than uh, than Bill Clinton, the more the most progressive perhaps in the last since LBJ. Um, is that true? And if so, why is the left still upset with him on things? <laughs> well, I think they're I think they're a little upset, but they're largely quietly upset, right? He's not he's not facing, you know, any real dissent uh, on on the left, even when people disagree with him. They're not vocal about it. They are the Democrats are very still unified against Trump, and they are very 
worried about you know hurting their own side. They're they're solidly behind him. Um, as far as like who's more progressive, I I always think that's a difficult sort of uh, sort of thing to gauge. Um, you know, he comes in, he said he was going to do a COVID relief bill. He did a two you know one point nine trillion dollar COVID relief bill. It had some things in it that were progressive priorities. It didn't have others. Um, you know, the parliamentarian knocked out the fifteen dollar minimum wage. You didn't see you know, Biden, you know, throwing things across the Oval Office about that um, could have been politically damaging to him. Um, but, you know, he he did some progressive things in that law. And the other ones that he has proposed will, you know, have some progressive things in them. Um, there are, you know, there's hundreds of billions of dollars that he wants to put into um, affordable housing. Uh, and he wants to change zoning. Where like, this is kind of, um, you know, arcane, but he wants to change zoning laws to, or, or put pressure on localities to change their zoning laws so that um, so that you have more uh, more affordable housing in communities across the country. So he's doing some pretty progressive things. I think everybody is a little bit a product of their time. Um, and Obama certainly got pressure from the left to do more early in his presidency to ask for more money. Um, and you know he he kind of settled on some tax cuts and some stimulus and you know some some direct aid stimulus. I also think there's some things Biden can do that. Obama can't, or that it was harder for Obama to do. And, and I don't know if it boils down entirely to race, but I think that's a component of it. I, you know, if Barack Obama had come out on day one and said, I want to, you know, put a couple hundred billion dollars into affordable housing, um, you know, I think the reaction to that would have been fair, uh, fair point. <laughs> amazing. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, you know, I, so I think that I think Biden has some some flexibility in some areas that that um, that Obama may not have had. He's he's still gotten quite a bit. I mean, even on the infrastructure plan, folks on the left AOC said that it should have been four times bigger. Uh, his climate change, um, his climate uh, summit speech just this morning, talking about trying to cut, uh, promising to cut. Uh, emissions in the U.S. by in half by 2030 and uh, entirely by 2050. And he's still got quite a bit of pushback from some folks on the left who said that wasn't fast enough and then more more needs to be done. Is that well, really how they feel or are they just trying to make people think he's more in the middle than he is? Well, I mean, I think that in some ways they're helpful to him, right? Because he can push away from um, the left a little bit and triangulate against uh, Republicans in the center and and, you know, Republicans and the center, not Republicans in the center, but he can kind of triangulate between those things and sound more moderate, moderate and reasonable to non-ideological voters and non-voters who are non-ideological. Um, but, uh, you know, there's a, something to watch with that, the language around that, that emissions cut, um, which is that they're talking about cutting it in half from the level at two, in 2005. Um, and so the level in 2005 was very high. Um, and so, interesting. There's an uh, asterisk I didn't see in that. It is I'm going to go looking a, for it. Thank you. <laughs> um, but it, it's kind of, a, I mean, at some level, it's a low bar, right? I mean, there are people who don't believe he should be doing any of that. And, you know, setting them aside for a minute, if you're somebody who believes that there should be, you know, major emissions cuts, what he's actually set is a pretty low bar for 2030 by dating it back to, to the level in 2005. And there's been some criticism uh, of him from the left and from scholars who say he's he's 
very good at lowering expectations and then exceeding. Okay, I'm gonna get. I'm gonna have to go look that up because I would. I'm. I'm a, I don't like people crossing their fingers behind their back when they ask when they do stuff. Susan, Susan, that to me is a <laughs> fingers crossed behind my back thing. Susan from Vegas actually asks a question that you started um, to uh, talk about, so I'm gonna pull it in here. Does President Biden do enough to distance himself from the far left? Um, I mean, time will tell. I mean, we're going to see, we'll have a, a check on that at the midterm elections, right? Um, we'll see who's animated and who's not and what they're animated about. Not, you know, I think it's too early to tell um, how that's all going to play out. Um, typically, presidents uh, lose seats in their first term, midterm election, lose seats in the, in the House and Senate. Um, if Democrats lose seats in the House and Senate, they're going to flip to the Republicans. Um, so it'd be very... Uh, very terrible for Joe Biden's agenda if he's not able to kind of reverse the historical norm and, and keep um, keep both chambers in the hands of Democrats. Uh, I do think that he picks his moments to distance himself from the left. And one of the things we write about in the book is, um, you know, the issues around police reform uh, that Biden's own campaign advisors came to him. Some of his campaign advisors came to him and said, you know, we want you in the wake of the George Floyd shooting and the protests around that you know, we want you to apologize for the crime bill. We want you to say defund the police. And Biden's, you know, reaction to that was to actually reiterate that he wanted to increase funding for local police. Um, you know, he went out and talked about the issue and he showed compassion for um, for activists uh, uh, who, who wanted police reform. And he showed some compassion for police officers. And some people didn't like that sort of both sidesism, uh, but but he very much pushed back against people in his own campaign who wanted him to go further left. Um, and we tell this story in the book um, uh, about Jim Clyburn and John Lewis on the House floor um, during the protests. And uh, John Lewis says to Clyburn, "This is right before John Lewis died." He says to Clyburn, uh, "Burn, baby, burn, killed us." and defund the police is going to kill them. And what he meant was the nonviolent civil rights movement in, you know, that, that Clyburn and Lewis worked on um, became more aggressive, not violent, but became more aggressive um, over the course of the 1960s. And, and essentially John Lewis was, was pushed out of the leadership of the Southern, uh, I'm sorry, the student nonviolent, nonviolent coordinating committee by Stokely Carmichael. And so what he meant was, you know, when we started saying burn, baby, burn, instead of give us our rights, um, that sort of destroyed the momentum of that movement. And, and Lewis's concern was that Black Lives Matter was going to hurt itself with the defund the police tag um, and, and basically thwart its own goals. And so it, when Biden talks to black elected officials, if he goes to talk to Clyburn, Clyburn tells him that, you know, or John Lewis would tell him that. Um, and so he I think he felt like he was on pretty good ground. Isn't there isn't there's there's something interesting about that to me because it, it it speaks to the wisdom of some of the folks who have you know learned from history <laughs> right and and we have a for whatever reason right now such a tendency in the in at least our media society um, to to really want to push older folks out. And so Aaron from Charlotte asks, Biden overcome, overcame great odds. What do you think has been driving him to push on despite his age? Uh, that's his question. I'm going to, I'm going <laughs> to, I'm going to let you answer it however you want to, but I'm going to 
ask you if you think age helped him in this situation, in his in his campaign and his ability to have success thus far as a as a president. Has age been a benefit to him? Um, I'm going to use a sports ball metaphor. <laughs> Because, you know, I'm not going to fly right over my head. Okay, great. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's a little bit like a like a, a veteran pitcher who, who had you know, came up as a rookie and had a blazing fastball and could throw it by everybody, but, um, but wasn't able to hit the strike zone. Becoming a veteran pitcher and having, you know, learning to throw other pitches and learning to throw in the strike zone better and um, having success with, with a little bit different of a skill set. And I think, you know, for Biden, um, you know, his – He's a, he can be indecisive to take him a long time to come to a, a place where he's made a decision. And in some ways, I think that was helpful to him in this campaign because it helped him uh, be less rash in the face of Trump, um, who was in front of the public so often just kind of shooting from the hip. Um, as far as what, what motivates him, I mean, this is a guy who uh, grew up as a stutterer and uh, grew up to filibuster on the Senate floor. This is somebody who has overcome challenges in his life. This is somebody who's overcome tragedies in his life. Um, this is somebody who has a tremendous belief and a tremendous optimism um, about his own endurance and his own, and you hear him talk about, you know, it doesn't matter how many times you get knocked out, you know, knocked down. It's, it's you know, how you get up. I think this is somebody who really has eternally believed in his ability to um, win the presidency and be good at it. He first ran for president in 1988. Um, you know, 1988 was a long. I didn't donate then, by the way. Ago. I did not donate then. <laughs> um, and and even before that, I mean, he thought about running in 1980, the year that that Ted Kennedy primary Jimmy Carter. He thought about running in '84 and '88. I mean, there's like seven times that he thought about running for president. I think one of the things that drives him is an incredible ambition, like all the other politicians who run for president, right. and a tremendous ego, like right? all because the other politicians who run for president, right? <laughs> Um, you know, I mean, and, and people we talked to for this book said to us, you know, look, I mean, once they get the, the bug, it never goes away. Um, he wanted to be oh, president. maybe and, running for president. I was like, politicians, no, that one's, that one's dead for me. <laughs> no, <I'm sorry. laughs> well, right. It depends on the politician, but at the level you're running for president, you know, that never really goes right. away. And, um, you know, I mean, so I think he, you know, he has in every campaign he's run, he's seen a reason for him to be president. This time he was right about it. Um, so, God, the, there were a whole bunch of good questions here. Um, I'm going to use Tariq's from Tariq from Phoenix because it talks about that campaigning thing um, a little bit. So many people accused Hillary of not campaigning enough. Did Biden invalidate that criticism? Oh, that's Isn't a fantastic question. Um, I think the campaigns are so fundamentally different. It's a little... Uh, it's a little hard to to compare them uh, because part of what Biden was doing uh, with his campaigning or lack of campaigning was was modeling behavior, right? Um, there was such a uh, sort of cultural rift over coronavirus and how to handle it and whether people should be out in public or at home. And so, I, you know, I think in a way he was, um, you know, messaging through through his own behavior. Um, in addition to that, voters became suddenly very educated on uh, how do I how do I vote this time? Right? Do you vote early? Do you vote you know early in person? Do you vote by mail? Um, there were 
hundreds of millions of dollars spent on campaigns, both both the actual presidential campaigns and outside groups trying to educate people about voting. And so I, I think it's a little different. Um, the reason, one of the reasons that Hillary Clinton didn't campaign so much in those Midwestern states is that there was a belief that she uh, sometimes brought more attention to the election. Her, her team believed this in the primary, that she brought more attention to the election and it brought out more people who were against yeah. her than it brought out people who were for her, which should suggest a candidate right. problem. <laughs> right. That a, was the thing that, but, that was the thing that didn't scare me about Joe Biden, right? But, but B, it's, you know, pre presumably it's correctable. I, I think Biden was also careful about where he did campaign and how he campaigned and trying to message with that, you know, sitting in backyards with people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think there was, I, I think there was a lot of thought given to how Biden was presented by his campaign that, that is, again, hard to parallel with other campaigns because it was such a different time. We, we're running low on time, but I've got to get this another really good one in. Um, Bianca from Albany, uh, is the administration interacting enough with the press? Was one of Trump's big mistakes overexposure? Oh, I love that question. Um, I have to think that the president should talk to the press all the time. <laughs> because I'm a reporter. Now you're owning your bias. Okay, got it. <laughs> I'm owning yeah. my bias. Um, but uh, yeah, I think Trump was overexposed to the press in that he said things that were um, contradictory within you know minutes of each other. Um, and so, uh, but it also created distractions that I think were helpful for him sometimes, right? Like when the press is running and writing a story about, you know, something he said that was like sort of off the off the charts and um you know he's able to implement policy while he's doing that so th there's a, a you know sort of a give and take there a netting um effect i think the net for trump i i mean look trump got 74 million votes this last last time he got a lot more than he had before he alienated he keeps more people us. than he <laughs> alienated more people than he inspired but um you know but to to the um to the point, and I'm sorry, I forgot the name from Albany, to, to the point, to, to that point, like, I do think that um, Trump was overexposed. I think also, though, that, you know, Biden could be more transparent. He could be more available. Um, he could talk a little bit more about how he's thinking about things. Um, this, is a, this is the most buttoned-down White House I've seen. And if you are in the White House, you should be very happy that I said that. <laughs> because it means what do you mean by button down? You mean no leaks or no very no answers? I mean very few leaks, okay. and I and I think a lot of times the answers are maybe incomplete. Okay, well, well, I would. It's hard to it's hard to get information out of this White House harder which, than the Obama well, White I mean, House. Really? Oh yeah, who and they were criticized yes. quite a bit for not being open. Um, What's amazing is the message discipline from a Biden White House. I mean, Biden is so famously undisciplined on message, but his White House is extremely disciplined. Um, what I hear from uh, from people around the White House uh, is um, that that Ron Klain, the White House chief of staff, has been uh, very attuned to that, to keeping message discipline and trying to, um, you know, assert order. I would, there. I would, I I know zero about the White House because I've, you know no experience there. But I would opine or guess people tend to respect folks. And if they like them, they they protect them. 
Um, and I wonder if there is a sense from those who work at the Biden White House that they have a loyalty to the president that perhaps those who worked in the Trump White House did not. And, and you know, he, he maybe has made them believe that they're all in it together in ways that President Trump <laughs> did not. Sometimes, sometimes leaks, though, can actually be, you know, loyalty is a funny thing. Uh, if you think the person that you're loyal to is doing the wrong thing and that they would be better served by doing something else, sometimes leaking what's going on can be helpful to serve that purpose. But you are substituting your judgment for theirs. Well, if you do that. Well, Jed Bartlett on the West Wing, he never had a leak, but that's because everybody loved him <laughs> so much. Um, <laughs> one one from me. Um, if if I mean, you people are worried about Trump, you said. Argue, arguably in the Democrat Party are still concerned and unified because there is still concern about Trump. And I think people have, uh, we're all sitting waiting, especially the Republicans like Tom Cotton and Josh Hawley are all sitting waiting to see if he's going to run for president in 2024 again. If he were to run again and Joe Biden were to run again, as he says he will, um, do you think he would need the same kind of luck in 2024, if the race were repeated as he did in 2020, that Biden would need yeah. the same law. I mean, Biden has has more ability to affect events as president than he did as a, a non incumbent, right? The president can set the agenda. I mean, one of the things Donald Trump failed to do is recognize, and this sounds so crass, but one of the things he failed to do was recognize that the coronavirus created political opportunity. Most people in the country don't blame the president of the United States for a disease right. appearing. Even, I think even most people didn't, didn't blame him, most people, not all people, didn't blame him um, that it took until, you know, March 14th or 15th to close down. We saw, you know, we, we saw what was going on in, in New York, like Andrew Cuomo didn't close down, de Blasio didn't close down. I think that people want to rally around the flag. I think they want to rally around the president when there's a crisis, whether you're talking about a terrorist attack or you're talking about a pandemic. And there was an incredible opportunity for Trump to show leadership, to show compassion and empathy, even um, in the days when it was hard to try to control the virus. Um, and he failed to do that. He didn't see it as mo the way a veteran politician, somebody who'd been around the block a few times would have seen it, which is, this is a real chance for me to unify the country. As as, as governors across the country did, right? Last year in, in North Carolina, yeah. Roy Cooper won more by more this time huge. than he did the first time. Yeah. yeah. Huge comparatively. Huge for North Carolina. Well, he he won yeah. by bigger than he won yeah. four years prior, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. and, and yeah. so it was a it was a lot of a lot of governors used it to their benefit, you're right. Which is which also selfishly I'll say is why for years I have argued with people who say, well, listen, but Donald Trump is a shrewd politician and he's just, he's, he's got a plan and he's coordinating and he, you know, they, they have credited him for years as being someone who's really got his finger on the pulse of what America's thinking and has really got a strategy behind him. And he's a master strategist. And I've always said, no, um, I mean, I, I worked with him. I, I know him and he's not, he was just lucky. <laughs> and so, like I said, to hear someone say Biden won because he was lucky to me rang a little bit like. Ugh. And so when when the producers and I were sitting down talking about this, this 
book and I have it and I started it. Um, and I said, you know what? Ah, I think it's because I constantly have told people, I think that Donald Trump was lucky. He didn't win because of skill or, or because he had the right message or because of shrewdness or strategy. He was the one who was lucky. It wasn't Biden who was lucky. It frustrated me and it made me not want to finish the book. But I got to say, and I appreciate the conversation here today because I am now very excited about finishing it. And I'm, I'm going to actually start right away after we're done. And I and, and they say there's no persuasion well, of politics. And I, and I encourage people who are listening to to do the same. Lucky how Joe Biden barely won the presidency. Um, Jonathan Allen and Amy Parnes, and I think I said Barnes earlier, but it's Amy Parnes um, and Jonathan Allen. Um, because I appreciate and respect the way you frame it, not as, oh, he didn't do anything right, but as, you know, it does take a lot to fall into place to to do that. And so God bless you. And I appreciate the fact that you were willing to, you know, let me argue and be a little stubborn at the beginning. Um, but uh, But that's what we try to do here because we we've had people on who cannot convince me at the end and we've had a few who can and you're one of them um so i uh absolutely appreciate you sharing it and talking to us about it i gotta know though the biggest question that i have and we all have and we can't find the right answer to yet is how the heck are we going to get along you know it's amazing i mean the, the thing is about this country we have so much in common you know, we have so much in common and we allow ourselves to be divided over kind of, it's not small things, but, but smaller than the things that, that unite us. I, I truly believe that. Um, and, you know, I think that we are in a fragile place right now because where we used to have uh, debates over how, you know, whether we should have big government or small government, bigger or smaller, we now have debates over whether there should be a government at all or whether we should have a republic. And it's, um, you know, I, I think this is a, a tough test for the country, but I really do believe that Americans have much more in common than they than their differences. 